It's wonderful to see all of you this morning. I invite you to turn in God's Word to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. Let me greet all of those of you who are gathered with us to worship our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, this morning. Can you hear me? The inevitable question, the eternal struggle, perhaps just on my end. You can hear me? Yes? No? I'm getting a no. You can hear me, naturally. Is that better? Yes? Those of you in the back, yes? Can I get a yes? Okay, perfect. First Timothy 3, verses 1 through 13. Let's hear God's word together. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for, the ch- for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil." Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, not sober-minded, but sober-minded, faithful in all things." Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons, deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Amen. Uh, may God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus Christ, we confess as you have taught us to confess that you are the great shepherd, the good shepherd. You have laid down your life for us. You have suffered, uh, you have endured the horrors of the cross that we might be cleansed of our sins and reconciled to God. Lord, we praise and thank you for the love that you have shown us in giving your life for ours. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, for the way that you continue to shepherd us and care for us through the church. Thank you for the encouragement and correction of the body, which is ultimately your encouragement and correction. Thank you, Lord, for the way that we are cared for by our elders and leaders We pray, Lord, for our pastors, the pastors of CBC, Lord, uh, that you'd keep them faithful to yourself. Grant them to be holy, to increasingly reflect the character of our Lord and Savior, uh, Jesus Christ, Father. Uh, We pray, Lord, that we would walk in purity and holiness, that we'd be faithful to the calling that we've received as pastors of Christ Bible Church. We pray also, Lord, for the deacons of CBC, that they would be faithful, uh, walking in purity of life and Uh, discharging their responsibilities effectively, wisely for the good of the body. And we pray, Lord, for the health of CBC, that as a body we would increasingly reflect the character of Christ, that we would increasingly experience unity, uh, love for one another, and uh, reflect your will, Lord, for your people. We pray that you'd bless the proclamation of your word this morning and use it to accomplish uh, these things and every good thing in our midst. Amen. So when someone says or uses the phrase institutional church, what is your response to that phrase, institutional church? What are the connotations, the associations that that phrase has for you? Naturally, your first instinct is institutional church means 
protection, nourishment, life, right? <laughs> right? Maybe those are the connotations institutional church has for you, and if that's the case, that's a, that's a very good thing. That's a biblical thing. But for many people, institutional church uh, has negative connotations. And you've heard people say, I don't need the church to have a relationship with Jesus. That's both true and untrue, right? You can have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. It's Jesus who saves you, not the church. So you can have a relationship with God through Jesus. But the New Testament has no category for having a relationship with God uh, while not having a relationship with the church. Those who have a relationship with God, those who have come to faith in Jesus Christ, trusting in him as their savior, also are in fellowship with the church. The two go together. A saving faith in Christ causes us to have fellowship with God's people. Uh, Ephesians 2.19 says, You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. When we've been, when we've been brought near to God, we have at the same time been reconciled to the body of Christ, the church, and we belong to it and ought to be in fellowship with it. And there is no, as I've said, no paradigm, no model in the New Testament of, a, of an isolated Christian following God apart from the church. We follow God as we walk in fellowship with fellow believers. Now, the scriptures give us a blueprint not just for our personal and individual relationships with God, but also for what the church is meant to be. Uh, this, as we've seen again and again in 1 Timothy, is essential to the letter. What should the church be? How should it be organized? Uh, we see in these verses that God has given the church essentially two offices, the office of pastor and deacon. And we'll consider today their responsibilities, the qualifications for these offices, and what we may learn from these qualifications. That's where we're going. And we begin with overseers. And the first thing to get clear, if we're going to think correctly about offices of the church in the New Testament is that overseer, elder, and pastor, these three words are used to refer to the same office and to the same group of people. These words are used interchangeably in the New Testament, uh, even though often in church life today that's not the case. So for example, in Ephesians, uh, Acts chapter 20, I should say, verse 17, uh, the Apostle Paul calls the elders of Ephesus to himself. Uh, and we're told in that verse, he, Paul, sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And then he addresses these men and he says, chapter 20, verse 28, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So notice, elders are overseers. Overseers are elders. 1 Peter 5, uh, 1 and 2, verses 1 and 2. I exhort the elders among you, so Peter's speaking to the elders, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness to the sufferings of Christ, shepherd the flock of God. So notice that elders shepherd, elders pastor, elders are pastors, uh, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. In other words, doing the work of an overseer. You see how all three of these things are brought together in this passage. Elders, pastors, overseer, one group of people, one office in the church. And we need to be very clear about that. Overseer describes the office from the standpoint of its function. What do pastors do? Well, they oversee. They provide leadership in the church. They exercise God-given authority for the health of the flock. Uh, elder looks at the same office, but perhaps from the standpoint of the dignity of the office, something like this. And shepherd also looks at it from the standpoint of, of leading and providing nourishment to God's people. 
So what are pastors supposed to do? You'll notice the thrust of this passage is not on what pastors are meant to do, but their qualifications for office. But very briefly, we should note, uh, pastors are called to lead. That's what the title overseer suggests. They're meant to provide direction for the people of God, for the church. Uh, They're meant to know the the sheep in their flock, uh, their struggles, their joys, their heartaches, their strengths. Uh, They're meant to know the people of God and provide direction for sheep individually and for the flock as a whole, leading them to ever-increasing faithfulness and spiritual health. So they lead the flock. They also feed the sheep. Basic to the New Testament's vision for spiritual growth is the appropriation and internalization of Scripture. How does God cause us to become more like Jesus? Uh, By feeding us with his word by enabling us to see more and more of Christ in every page of Scripture. So basic to the task of being a pastor is feeding God's people with the Word of God, week after week, proclaiming it faithfully. And along with feeding, pastors are called to protect the flock, to warn them against doctrinal error and false teachers, uh, to encourage them and even rebuke them when they're drifting towards sin, to pray for them, and make sure that the people of God are spiritually safe and protected. So what is the aim of pastoral ministry then? Fat sheep. We want sheep that are well fed by scripture. Safe sheep, uh, protected from doctrinal error, uh, cautioned against drifting into sin, walking with the Lord, and fruitful sheep. One sign of spiritual maturity is that it's not just you that's growing, but you're helping other people grow. Ephesians 4 says that pastor teachers are given to the church to, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So pastors are not called to do all of the spiritual work in the church. They're called to equip others to engage in helping others follow Christ. That's the goal of uh, of, uh, the work of the pastor. Healthy, vibrant, flourishing flock. Healthy sheep. That's what they are, are given authority to aim at, a flourishing flock. Or to sum it up using the language of Hebrews, Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them. Why? For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. On the last day, pastors will have to give an account before Christ for every single one of the sheep that he has entrusted to their care. It is a weighty and solemn responsibility. But that's what the work of ministry, the work of being a pastor involves. Uh, Helping people get to heaven safely. Watching over their souls. It's no light matter. And therefore, be sure to pray for your pastors, your overseers. So let's look at the qualifications then for for the office of pastor. First thing to note is that this is a noble task, verse 1. It's literally a, a good work, something worth doing. To devote one's life to the ministry is not to waste one's life. And because it is a noble task, an overseer must be above reproach. A noble task requires, verse 2, a noble character. Now, uh, the New Testament scholar D.A. Carson makes the observations about, uh, about these qualifications that they're remarkable for being unremarkable. Basically, what they require the pastor to be is a faithful Christian. Essentially, everything that's required of the pastor is required of all believers. And so as we look at these qualifications, yes, in the first instance, we want to consider, like, the, these are criteria God has given to the church for determining who should and who sh- should not be a pastor, But at the same time, we should recognize this is God's will for all of us. We should all be increasing in these character qualities. So we'll look at this uh, from both angles, and you should as well. Right. So an overseer must be above reproach. 
Uh, this refers to his reputation in and outside the community. Uh, there is no glaring inconsistency between what they profess and the way they live. They don't unsay with their life what they say with their lips. There's a basic faithfulness and consistency between what they say and what they do. This is not sinless perfect, perfection. Uh, we won't be perfect, none of us, not even pastors, until Jesus comes back. Uh, so pastors themselves struggle with sin and are in the middle of their sanctification, growing and learning uh, like everybody else. But there is a basic pattern of faithfulness, a basic consistency between what they say and how they live, and they are above reproach. And what that means, more specifically, is then spelled out in the, the rest of these qualities. They are the husband of one wife, literally man of one woman, one woman man. And that's straightforward enough. Uh, a pastor, if he's married, should be faithful to his wife. Now, this doesn't mean that all pastors have to be married, but they frequently will be. And where that's the case, there should be faithfulness to the marriage covenant. They are faithful to their wife. Uh, the biblical guidelines for the proper enjoyment of sexual intimacy are straightforward. If you're single, God's will is celibacy, to abstain. And if you're married, to find fulfillment within the context of that marriage in your spouse. Drink water only from your well. Everything outside of that uh, is off limits. So there is a sexual purity, faithfulness in that area of life, of course. Um, and in addition, another quality is that they are to be self-controlled. Why do we need self-control? Because there's often a large gap, isn't there, between what we want and what we ought, right? What we want to do at a given moment and what we should do. We want to watch that next episode of our show on Netflix, but we ought to go to bed so we can be effective employees and parents, spouses. Uh, it's, it's because that there, there is this large chasm between want and ought that we need to exercise self-control so that we are consistently living in a principled manner. Our life isn't driven by our appetite, by whim. It's, uh, it is shaped by principle. If we're going to live consistently, if we're going to accomplish anything in life, if there's a trajectory to our lives, it's going to be because there is self-control. And again, this is not just a, a character quality that should be exhibited by elders. It should be exhibited by all believers. Then we're told that the elder should be hospitable. I wonder, if you were coming up with a list of character qualifications, would you have included that one? Do you see that as essential for a pastor to have? As Paul tells Timothy what he should be looking for in potential pastors, this is one that he underscores. Now, we need to understand the historical situation here. It was not as easy to travel in the ancient world as it is today. There isn't a best Western everywhere. Just readily uh, check into and enjoy a comfortable stay. Uh, traveling could be dangerous in the ancient world. It could be uncertain. And one of the ways in which Christians could advance the cause of the gospel and the cause of Christ in the world was to open their homes to itinerant preachers, uh, let them stay there, provide a meal for them so that the work of the gospel could advance. This is using your home and your food and the resources God has given you for the sake of the kingdom. And pastors should have this quality. They should be generous with the good things of life. Uh, they should have an open home. Um, they should have people eat with them and share those things with them. There needs to be a large-heartedness, not a stinginess uh, when it comes to these things. And hospitality is also an expression of love for people. Pastors should enjoy people. 
I know this should probably go without saying, but it should be said, that they basically enjoy being with the sheep that Christ has entrusted to them. Uh, they have a desire to bring them close and spend time with them. And so hospitality is one of the qualifications for the office of pastor. Uh, and again, this is something that Christ calls all believers to at one level. First Peter 4.9 says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Which if you show hospitality often, I suspect is a temptation. Uh, not again, right? Without grumbling, open up your home, open up your table, and love people that way. And I think in our world where there's increasing social alienation, where people are increasingly lonely and isolated, uh, one of the most significant ways we can love people is to bring them into our home. Increasingly, like, people are, I don't, know, I don't know what your experience is like, but they're almost surprised to get a dinner invitation. Sometimes pleasantly surprised. Sometimes they're a little like, put off, like why? Why are you inviting me into your home? That's, that's, it's become weird. Uh, but one way to make an impact in people's lives is just to have them over, hear their story, share a good meal together, as Jesus often did with sinners, and in that warm context of fellowship over a meal, pointing them to Jesus. I think you'll find that many people are starved for that and very receptive to that. So one basic way we can make an impact. An elder is to be gentle. Uh, the contrast here, verse 3, not violent, but gentle. Now, violence is not just physical violence. It, it includes that. A pastor shouldn't be a brawler, shouldn't be pugnacious. Uh, but beyond just physical violence, it includes the idea of being a bully, of being a domineering, aggressive, I'm going to get my way no matter what kind of personality, where you just steamroll people to accomplish the mission. That's not the character of a pastor. That's not the kind of character Jesus had or pastors should have. Instead of that, they should be gentle. Again, Christ was gentle in dealing with his sheep. His under-shepherds should be gentle as well. And gentleness includes the idea of not insisting on your rights, not insisting on the letter of the law. We see this quality, for example, in Joseph, husband of Mary, mother of our Lord Jesus Christ. Before Joseph knows what's going on, before he understands that Mary's pregnancy is part of a divine plan to bring the Messiah into the world, he thinks that his, uh, that his fiance, the woman that he's been engaged to, has betrayed him. He thinks initially that she has been unfaithful to him. And Matthew records his response. Before I read it, how might you have expected a man to respond in that situation? The woman that he's legally engaged to marry is suddenly found to be with child, she's pregnant. How does the average man respond? Here's how Joseph responds. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Now, he had the right to engage in, in an arduous legal process to put her to shame, but he wanted to do it discreetly. He didn't want to, to cause her to feel the full misery of, of the wrong that he thinks she has done. That's gentleness. It's a leniency with people. It's a, it's a compassion. Uh, we don't deal with people as they deserve to be dealt with because we, of course, have not been dealt with that way by God. So not pressing, not insisting on your rights, not being harsh with people. Secondly, gentleness uh, involves caring not just about outcomes but about people. 
You're not just motivated by a desire to get certain things accomplished. You also care about people as you seek to accomplish that mission. Uh, you're not a good pastor if you accomplish the goal, but there is a trail of dead bodies behind you. In fact, people are the goal of ministry, right? So pastors care about not just accomplishing things, but about people and building them up, not tearing them down for the sake of uh, whatever objective there is. And finally, gentleness means not being harsh with people, not being overly, hyperly critical, um, but knowing how to affirm people. Michael Kruger, in his book, Bully Pulpit, makes the observation, bully pastors lack gentleness, compassion, and understanding. They put enormous burdens on backs of people, are hypercritical, and are hardly ever pleased. The opposite of gentleness would be a fault finder. You know if you've done something wrong in the church, the pastor's going to come and he's going to get you, speak to you severely and harshly. And Paul is saying that's not how a pastor should be. That doesn't mean, gentleness doesn't mean he doesn't have convictions and isn't firm where he needs to be firm, uh, but he's also quick to affirm what is good and encourage people and will be slow in criticism and wise in criticism. Gentleness is an important quality in a pastor. Not a lover of money, pretty self-explanatory. That means that there's a general contentment. Uh, He has gotten past the illusion that if I could just have a little more, then my life would be perfect, right? That's That's the idea. If I could just do a little more financially, if I could just get to that next level, then it would be okay. And of course, we waste our lives never getting to that next level. Pastor should have seen past that illusion, is content with what he has, and is motivated not by money, but by a sincere love for Jesus Christ and his people. That's what drives the ministry. So here he speaks about motives, and significantly that's applied to deacons as well. They shouldn't be in it for the money. Look at verses 4 and 5. This is significant. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. The requirement here is that those who would be pastors should manage their household well before they become pastors, and their children should be generally respectful and submissive to to authority. They're not out of control. They're not rebellious, conspicuously rebellious. Uh, Those who would be pastors should have their household in order, and their children should be disciplined and uh, respectful. Now, this doesn't mean that they are to be tyrants at home. The same gentleness that they are to exhibit in the church, they ought to exhibit with their children. But there should be a mingling of gentleness and firmness, and their children should be taught how to submit to authority. He goes on, Paul goes on in verse 5 to say, if you can't do that at home, if, if someone is not able to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? If you can't do it at the lower level, you're not going to be able to do it at the greater level for the church. So when assessing an individual for the office of elder, it's important to look at their family. What's going on with their spouse? And how are their children responding to authority, to their authority and authority more generally? That's an important indication of whether a man is fit for the office of pastor. He must not be a recent convert. So this person has, has walked with the Lord for an extended period of time has gone through some things, and is able to minister to others, not just out of a knowledge of Scripture, but out of his own experience with Jesus Christ. To put a man into the office of pastor prematurely is to um, 
put him in a place of spiritual danger. He might become conceited and fall into the condemnation of the devil. So don't be hasty in appointing pastors. Make sure that they've walked with the Lord for a period of time and are spiritually mature or ripe. He must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace. That's an interesting requirement, isn't it? On the one hand, we recognize that the church and even its leaders will experience opposition from the world because it hates Jesus and hates the gospel. At the same time, when a person is wise and responsible and faithful out there in the world, they will develop a good reputation as an, as an employee, for example. And it is right and legitimate for the church in assessing a man's qualification for office to look not just at their conduct on Sunday morning and with the people of God, but how do they conduct themselves out there in the world? What's their reputation among coworkers? That's a legitimate question to ask, because if they're known widely for being a gossip or not working very hard, then that lack of credibility out there will impede their effectiveness in here and also will impede their effectiveness in evangelism and making Jesus attractive to the world. So we should consider an elder's reputation among the people of God, but also among outsiders. What is, there, what is the consensus among those out there? What sort of individual is he? To fail to do so is to put him into a position where he may fall into disgrace, where his credibility is shot. So we want to look at conduct in the church and outside of it. Now, as we step back from this list of qualifications, what do we see? What strikes us? Oh, and before I, and before I get there, I've emphasized again and again, as the list does, character. But there is something said, isn't there, about competence? Character comes first, but notice what the Apostle Paul says, uh, the elders should be competent in. They should be able, verse 2, they should be able to teach. Character, the weightiest factor, but there is an element of competence and skill to be a pastor, and that is the ability to teach. That presupposes skill in the use of language. person is able to uh, clearly and effectively convey their thoughts to others using words. There's a basic aptitude for the effective use of language, right? And then beyond that, there is a knowledge of Scripture and doctrine. It's not enough to be able to speak well. You have to have something to say. And what you should have something to say about is Scripture and doctrine, right? So these are people with a, a good grasp of Scripture, of theology, and they're able to convey it to others. And even beyond that, we might say that the elder is oriented to the task of... Um, communicating scripture and growing in their knowledge of scripture. They love the Bible. They're students of scripture. So that's the one competence alongside managing a household. We could put that as a second competence if you'd like. Uh, but these, these are the two abilities that aspiring pastors should have. But again, as we step back from this list of qualifications, it's noteworthy that the emphasis falls on character, not competence. Which is not to say competence isn't important, it is, but character is far more important. It is better to be holy and Christ-like than massively gifted and learned. You can do more good for the kingdom if your character reflects that of Jesus Christ than even if you are wonderfully gifted but not walking um, in faithfulness to Jesus. As pastors, we can't be useful and we can't be effective if we're not reflecting the character of Jesus. Because so much of what we're called to do is not just teach with our lips, we're called to teach with our lives. We should be able to say, 
We should be able to say, follow me as I follow Christ. Look at my example. Look at the life that I'm leading. Follow me as I follow Christ. That's an essential aspect of ministry, setting an example for others to follow. And at the same time, even as that's true for pastors, recognize that it's true for you. Your effectiveness in serving other people, your ability to use your gifts effectively, depends on a Christ-like character. The more Christ-like you are, the more spiritual good you can do in the lives of other people. What we all most need is to see a compelling, incredible example of faithfulness to Jesus. And when you see that, it is life-giving. It's instructive. It rebukes you. It encourages you. But we all need to see faithfulness modeled. We need that from pastors, but we need that from uh, all of God's people. Remember years ago when I was in college, uh, I had this, uh, this friend in the church who was kind of an older brother to me, like a decade older than I was, uh, took an interest in me. We would get together occasionally and he sought to help me grow in Christ and I appreciated the good uh, work that he did. But I remember attending a prayer meeting with him once and the guy, he wasn't, I don't think he was leading the prayer meeting, but he got up to speak and man, he said some terrible things. And I began to do what I do, which is vent and fidget you know, get frustrated and start to shift in my seat. And uh, I was immature. It was a foolish response. But then I noticed that this brother was cool as a cucumber, calm, reflective. It's not that he agreed with what was being said. It's just that he had more maturity. And what was intriguing is he didn't have to say a word to me. I saw in his example, this is what a wise man does when confronted with foolish teaching, right? Is calm and knows how to respond to it the right way. Doesn't immediately get frustrated and vent. It's the importance of a compelling, incredible example. Lewis writes in one of his letters, C.S. Lewis, if you're new, um, <laughs> how little people know, how little people know who think that holiness is dull. When one meets the real thing, it is irresistible. If even 10% of the world's population had it, would not the whole world be converted and happy before the year's end? Where there is Christ-likeness and holiness, that is a powerful example that convicts, that helps people grow. If you want to be effective for Jesus, focus on your character. Focus on growing in holiness. And it's important to recognize that these qualities that Paul has described are not just qualities that rear their head occasionally. These are character qualities that can be depended on. You're not a patient person if you're patient one time out of 20, right? You're an irritable person who happens on occasion to be patient. A patient person is patient again and again and again when provoked by circumstances or people. They are consistently calm and wise in their response. It's a character quality, not a a hiccup in, in a lifestyle of irritability. And so we want to cultivate these qualities such that they are dependable, such that we respond with patience, not once, occasionally, but again and again. How do we do that? Well, walk with Jesus. There's no substitute for that. Spend time praying. Spend time in the Word. Remember all that He has done for us and respond with praise and adoration. Walk with Jesus. But then we need to take a step beyond that and intentionally cultivate a Christ-like character. We're not just going to drift into holiness. 
We need to cultivate holiness. How do we do that? Recognize those areas in your life where you're struggling. And then prayerfully consider practical steps you can take to put to death those sins so you can become more like Jesus. For instance, if you're arrogant, you think highly of yourself and you look down on other people, common failing, common sin, how can you kill pride and cultivate humility? Well, what you might do is offer to take everybody's coffee order, pick it up, and bring it to, to work. You might offer to serve people. Instead of putting yourself over them, you serve them. Uh, when someone achieves something, perhaps at work, draw attention to it. Praise the achievements of other people. You think concretely and specifically about ways that you can put yourself last and put others first. Talk to the people that can't do anything for you. Talk to the people that nobody else talks to. Go out of your way to build relationships with those kinds of people. There are practical things that we can do to cultivate godly character qualities. We don't just drift into holiness. It requires prayer. It requires intentionality. Where do you need to grow? Again, it, there's a place for competence. Competence is important. But at the end of the day, if we want to be really useful for Jesus, we need to cultivate a Christ-like character. So much then for the elders, overseers, pastors. What about these deacons then? Well, first thing to note as we transition to the deacons is that the word deacon can be used in a general sense and frequently used in this sense in Scripture to refer to one who serves, a servant. So in this sense, Jesus is a deacon. He serves apostles, pastors are deacons. All Christians are deacons insofar as they serve other people. There is this general use of the term, it's common in scripture, but then there is a more specific use of that same word to refer to the office of deacon, the office of servant or server, and that's what's in view in, in this passage. This is a second office that complements and assists the first office, the office of pastor. And to understand what it means to be a deacon, we have to go to Acts chapter 6. The church has historically understood Acts 6 to be the significant background to the office of deacon. In that passage, the word deacon is not used, uh, but the act of deaconing or serving is used several times in the passage. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, is used several times in the passage, and this is the situation in Acts 6. You have these two groups in the early Christian community. You have Palestinian Jews who are true Jews. They come from the land of Palestine, uh, they can speak Hebrew well, that's their language. And then you have Hellenistic Jews who live abroad and have come into Jerusalem for a festival but don't live there, and they're probably more conversant in Greek than they are in Hebrew. And these two groups, they're converted, they're, they're both in the church, but there's always the danger that there will be a tension between them, isn't there? And so a an issue does arise where the Greek-speaking Jews feel that their widows are being neglected in the daily distribution of food. It's a problem. So they come to the apostles. What, what would you expect the apostles to do? Roll up their sleeves, get in there, and fix it, right? Well, here's what the apostles do. Acts 6, 2 through 4. The twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. They're, and they're not being like, disrespectful. This is an essential ministry, as we'll see. Uh, but they're saying it's not right for us to give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom you will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Okay, this is an important task. And so we're going we're gonna to raise up qualified men to do this work. But we're not going to do it. Why? 
Because there's a more essential task for the well-being of the church. That's the ministry of the word, ministry of prayer. And if we get distracted by doing other things, the church will implode. John Stott, commenting on this passage, observes, having looked at Satan's attack against the church in previous chapters, Stott notes, the devil's next attack was the cleverest of the three. Having failed to overcome the church by either persecution or corruption, he now tried distraction. If he could preoccupy the apostles with social administration, which though essential was not their calling, they would neglect their God-given responsibilities to pray and to preach and so leave the church without any defense against false doctrine. So what do deacons do? Well, they engage in works of mercy, helping support the poor and the widows in the congregation. They engage in various administrative tasks so that the elders of the church might devote themselves to prayer and to scripture. Deacons safeguard the centrality of the word and prayer in the life of the church. Did you get that? They safeguard the centrality of the word and prayer in the life of the church. By engaging in all of these important, all of these necessary tasks that would nevertheless distract the pastors from their primary work of leading and feeding the sheep. And we want to be clear as well. Yes, deacons free up pastors to devote themselves to the ministry of the word and prayer, but the work that they do is good in itself. As they serve the poor, as they serve the widows, as they engage in these administrative tasks, they are, they are mediating the love of Jesus to the church. This is a good and noble work that they are engaged in. And deacons have a long and distinguished history. One church historian speaking about the ancient church uh, describes the contributions of deacons in this way. They visited martyrs who were in prison, clothed and buried the dead, looked after the excommunicated with the hope of restoring them, provided the needs of widows and orphans, and visited the sick and those who were otherwise in distress. In a plague that struck Alexandria about A.D. uh, 259, deacons were described by an eyewitness as those who visited the sick fearlessly, ministered to them continually, and died with them most joyfully. So it's a long and distinguished office in the church. Some of the functions of deacons include, uh, some of these are under, there's a book by a guy named Smethurst on deacons, and he describes his church's constitution and the range of ministries assigned to deacons, and they include seeing that the sick, the sorrowing, the aged, and the infirm receive spiritual and physical comfort, leading the hospitality ministries of the church, attending to the normal care and maintenance of church properties, receiving, holding, and dispersing a fund for benevolence, and reporting from time to time to the use of such funds, on the use of such funds, attending to the accommodations for public worship, serving in other specific capacities as the church has needs. So you see there are a wide range of administrative functions. Uh, there, there's mercy ministry involved in this, caring for those who are widowed, for the poor, for the sick, and so on. This is an important office given to us by our Lord to come alongside the office of pastor and minister to the church, ministering both to its spiritual and its physical needs. So very quickly, what are the qualifications for deacons? Well, to a large extent, they overlap with those of elders. Uh, Notice the word likewise, suggesting continuity with what's said before in verse 8. Uh, They shouldn't be double-tongued. They shouldn't say one thing to one group and then another thing to a different group. Uh, What they say, they do. There should be an integrity in their speech, not controlled by wine or food. Look at verse 9, though. This might have been 
this may be for some of you somewhat surprising, they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. They need to be sound in doctrine. They need to hold to the gospel and understand the faith and be grounded in it and, and hold it with, a, with clear and deep conviction. They're not going to teach the truths of the faith the way that elders are. They're going to have a different role. Uh, nevertheless, they should be sound in doctrine, holding on to the primary teaching of the faith and even able, if occasion should arise, to explain the central truths of the faith to others. So there's a doctrinal requirement for deacons. Maybe overlooked sometimes, but important. And notice verse 10, they need to be tested first. Paul doesn't describe at length what the test looks like. He just says that a test should happen. They should be examined. And the fact that the word also is used suggests that it's not just deacons who are to be examined, also the elders. Whatever, by whatever means the, the church decides on, deacons and elders, their lives and whether or not those lives conform to the blueprint and the qualifications here, those things should be examined. There should be a process for that. Uh, what that means then is that no individual can by themselves, when reading these qualifications, decide that they're qualified. It's not ultimately the individual that determines if they're qualified to be a pastor or deacon, it's the church. When the church begins to say, hey, you know, this individual seems to have this quality, and they're leading their household well, and they seem to be able to teach, and, and when, you know, there, there's increasing evidence of a godly character, the church can come to the individual and say, hey, we, we see that you meet these qualifications. But it's not the individual in the first instance who determines whether or not they are qualified. It's the church's work to do that. Then verse 11 speaks of the wise of deacon, uh, deacons rather. I, there's some controversy about the meaning of verse 11. Literally, the Greek reads, women, women likewise must be dignified. And the question is, is this a reference to female deacons? Or is this a reference to the wives of male deacons? So there's some discussion about this. And, and faithful readers of scripture land on both sides. Um, my reading is that the reference here is to wives, particularly because in the next verse, uh, the word woman clearly refers to wife the wife of a deacon. Um, and then the same thing is true in the qualifications for elder, uh, uh, man of one woman, but the reference is clearly to wife, and so I think on contextual grounds that the reference is, in fact, to wives, not women. But arguments could be made in, in, in different directions. There are other arguments that could be put forward. The crucial thing I want you to notice, whether or not women are, in fact, deacons, I think it's unlikely that they are, it's clear that they nevertheless do the work of deacons. They may not hold the office, but they engage in the function. And their wives are probably singled out because of the nature of the work of a deacon. They're involved in all kinds of practical aid uh, to the people of the church, and wives will naturally be a part of that, so hence they're being singled out. So women, whether or not women hold the office of deacon, they clearly engage in the functions of deacons as they should. And so as a church, we want to encourage that. We recognize a lot of mercy ministry, uh, a lot of things, even administrative tasks that need to be accomplished are best accomplished not just by men, but also by women. Finally, verse 13, as the elders have been told that their work is a noble work, so also, verse 13 says to deacons, this is a good work. The work of deacon is not simply a stepping stone to being like an elder. It is inherently good. Those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves, a good reputation in the church. They're honored in the church, as they should be, for their good work on behalf of the church. And that good reputation in the church enables them to continue to fulfill their ministry even more effectively. And they also gain great confidence in the faith. I take that to be a reference to their own confidence in the faith. As they serve Christ in the church, they grow in their confidence in their relationship with Jesus Christ. Yes, 
Deacons assist elders by enabling them to focus on the ministry of the word and prayer, but they should not see their work as having value only in taking things off the plate of the elders. The work that they do is also very good and necessary for the life of the church. So as we step back then from the qualifications for overseers and deacons, it's a good opportunity for those who hold office at Christ Bible Church to consider their own character and conduct. Are we living in a way that provides a credible and consistent example for the people around us? Are we walking in faithfulness to Jesus Christ? Can we say to others, follow me as I follow Christ? Where do we need to grow? Where do we need to become more holy? Where do we need to reflect Jesus more? And also those who are elders and deacons in the church ought to ask themselves, how can I be serving Jesus more effectively and faithfully? How can I be doing the work that has been entrusted to me better? And as we consider where we need to grow in character and in our service, we also need to recognize that it is a privilege to serve the church. It's the church of Jesus Christ. It is an honor to be able to serve him and his people. And we need to make sure that we give thanks for the opportunity to do so. Those who don't hold an office in the church, what is this passage inviting you to do? Well, at a minimum, it's calling you to love, support, encourage your pastors and deacons. You should be cheering them on. You should speak a word of encouragement to them. And certainly, whatever else you do, you should be praying for them. Praying that God would keep them faithful. Praying that God would help them to grow. Pray that their ministries, whatever they are, would be fruitful for the glory of God. One basic responsibility that you have before God is to pray for those who lead you and serve you. They can't serve you well without your support, and equally, you can't be what Christ has called you to be without their support. We're one body, and we need each other. So pray for your pastors and your deacons. And finally, consider the flip side of these instructions. If Christ loves the church and has therefore given her pastors, deacons, those to lead her and feed her and guide her, then what does that imply about you? If they're called to lead and feed and protect, what does that imply about your need? It implies that you need to be fed. You need to be protected. You need to be cared for. And actually, the more spiritually mature you are, the more thankful you are for the ministry of the church and how it strengthens you to follow Jesus, and you recognize your absolute dependence on Christ, but also the church, and helping you to be faithful. Perhaps the less mature you are, the more you think you have what it takes in yourself, apart from the body of Christ, to do what needs doing. The implication of this passage is that you need the church. Yes, the institutional church. You need pastors, you need deacons in your life who help you. You need the body of Christ and their gifts to help encourage you grow in, to grow in your relationship with Jesus. Like so many times, someone will wonder, why, why am I not growing? Why is my relationship with Jesus seemingly dry? And they always neglect to look at the most obvious place. Are you in fellowship with the church? Are you doing the basic things that Christ has called you to do? Are you under the preaching of God's word week after week? Are you taking the Lord's Supper? Are you praising him with God's people? Are you receiving encouragement and admonition from your brothers and sisters? And if you're not, why are you surprised that you're not growing as much as you'd like and that your relationship with Jesus isn't flourishing more? God has so designed things that we need the church to flourish. We need one another. Paul Tripp puts it this way. 
I have now come to understand that I need others in my life. I now know that I need to commit myself to living in intentionally intrusive, Christ-centered, grace-driven, redemptive community. I now know it's my job to seek this community out, to invite people to interrupt my private conversation and say things to me that I couldn't or wouldn't say to myself. I have realized how much I need warning, encouragement, rebuke, correction, protection, grace, and love. I now see myself as connected to others, not because I have made this choice, but because of the wise design of the one who is the head of the body, the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you recognize this fundamental unity produced by the Spirit between uh, the people of God? Do you recognize your need for the church and the church's need for you and your gifts? When we see that, we're going to lean into the church, not away from it. We're going to seek to cultivate relationships, let people speak into our lives, and give thanks to Jesus for all of the ways that the church and its leadership nourishes us spiritually. That's the posture that we should have towards, yes, the institutional church. One of the uh, early fathers says, he who has God as father has the church as mother. There's a truth to that. So love the church Pray for the church, pray for its leadership, and receive from it the encouragement that Christ himself intends to give you. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you've called us not just to yourself, to a relationship with the Father, but also to a relationship with one another. We pray that these relationships, Lord, would be honoring to you. Uh, We pray that those who lead in the church one way or another would do so faithfully. Amen.